Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. It's good to be here. We are in the season that is known as Advent in the church. Advent means coming of something. And what we're preparing for in this season is the coming of Jesus. And on the 25th of December, we'll remember that. But what's really important is that Advent has something to teach us. And often we can fast forward to Christmas Day, which is understandable. It's a fun day. And it's great to remember Jesus and his birth on that day. But I think there's actually something that's really timely. Obviously, every year Advent comes around, but I just feel that this year there's particularly something timely to remembering Advent. And our title for what this Advent has been prayed into and reflected on and what we came up with was this phrase, the thrill of hope, the thrill of hope. And if you think about a thrill, a thrill is almost something physical. It's not just a you're a little stoked about something. A thrill is something that you feel inside of you. It has a physical manifestation. And I want to suggest today that I actually think thrill is a really appropriate word because the thrill of the hope of the new thing that God wants to do in us, his coming again into our lives, actually breaks something that I think has kept us paralyzed in our world at this moment. I was thinking of memories of when I was younger and what thrill meant to me. And I remember one of the best movie experiences I had as a young boy, and I'm dating myself here, but one of the big thrills I had going to a movie that thrilled me was when I was a boy and I went and had the whole movie. I think we went to Russell Street Cinemas in the city And I remember the smell of the popcorn and I went and saw Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I remember watching that movie and I was just young enough that it was a thrill and I remember just being totally drawn into that movie. I was also thinking about this week, the first time the thrill of making like a big purchase. I had saved up money and I remember there was something I wanted to buy and we had gone as a family, we're in London, and we had gone to Carnaby Street in the center of London, and I was thrilled because I was able to buy something that I'd wanted for ages, saved up, and it was a pair of Doc Martin shoes. And I remember walking out, having this long process of saving up and then buying this item and then walking out and putting them on around and walking around London feeling like I was awesome. <laughs> Blisters, yeah, yeah, good point. Lots of Band-Aids were helpful. I remember the first gig I went to, and it was in St Kilda, I just turned 18, and it was a band that I was really into at the time, British indie band called Ride. All of these experiences were these thrill moments that I clearly remember that you almost had this sort of tingle of excitement about when they happened. What I did not expect was that several decades later that I would be watching as I did yesterday, the trailer for the new Indiana Jones. And Harrison Ford, who was at his peak Harrison Fordness in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I don't even know what the new one's called, but he's 80. 
And he's not like a hero. He, he's, he's, he's like, God bless him, but not exactly who you would think about. And it's again this remake and another remake and a continuation of a season where it's like, it didn't just jump the shark. The shark is like, the shark's died. <laughs> what I did not expect as well, that when I was 18 watching Ride and the album had just come out, it was like the cutting edge of indie music at the time and I was in the mosh pit. What I did not expect is that several years later, they, would play, they played Melbourne this week and they're old. They're old middle-aged men and they've lost, they don't have cool hair. They don't have any hair, some of them. And I did not expect that we'd be doing the same thing years on. I thought at that moment, like you had a cool band and then they disappeared and they had a cool band. I didn't expect the Rolling Stones to be touring, looking like they'd been preserved in jars still at this stage. <laughs> Those little troll dolls in a jar for several years. Sorry, Mick Jagger. <laughs> You've got enough money. Um, and what I didn't expect was that when my family was just in London a couple of months ago, that we would again be in Carnaby Street and that fashion would go full circle and my daughter Grace would be buying the exact same pair of Doc Martens that I bought in Carnaby Street. And all of this says that the thrill of hope is something we experience less. The thrill of the new, the shock of the new, the something so exciting and new is draining away from our culture. We live in a world of endless remakes, adaptions of that thing which we've seen before, retro styles going again and again, music making virtually nothing new. The British music critic Mark Fisher said, pretty much any, you could play any music now and it would sound like something still did in 1998. There's almost his argument was nothing really new has been invented since 1998. Now, another music journalist, another British music journalist, Simon Reynolds, has coined this phenomenon that's just not in popular culture, but in the whole of our world, retromania. He says this, in the 2000s, the present became ever more crowded out by the past, whether in the form of archived memories of yesteryear or leeching off ancient styles. Instead of being about itself, the 2000s has been about every other previous decade happening again all at once. This kind of retromania has become a dominant force in our culture to the point where it feels like we've reached some kind of tipping point. Is nostalgia stopping our culture's ability to surge forward? Or are we nostalgic precisely because our culture has stopped moving forward? And so we inevitably look back to more momentous and dynamic times. Now, I wonder if this is not just true for our culture, I wonder if this is true for ourselves. That where we exist now is that the good the great is in the past. We feel that personally. We feel that as the church. And so our gaze is looking backwards. Now, what I love about Advent is that we do look backwards and we look backwards to this story of Jesus' birth, his incarnation in the world. But in doing that, God points us forward. This is about remembering the coming of Jesus but it's also remembering that Jesus will return. It's remembering the times when God comes, the Holy Spirit comes into the world and actually pushes our eyes forward. So the thrill of hope, actually we, we celebrate at this time of year, comes and smashes into, I think almost like a cultural stronghold that we're now almost afraid to hope. We actually dare not dream 
We worry about hoping that something new will come because as a culture, we don't know how to handle that. So we do try and create experiences. We do try and make memories. But I don't know if you've seen this, if you've been in a tourist site around the world and someone at some point's taken an Instagram picture that's gone viral in front of some wall or something, and then you see these lines of people just lining up to do it. We are living other people's thrills of hope. We are living other people's once new thing, and we're just stuck on repeat. But Advent comes and does something different. To capture this, we're going to be preaching This week, next week, and the third week, all of this I'm going to be preaching into over the next three weeks. But to frame this, I want to begin with the scriptures. And this is from the message translation. Uh, It's Romans 8, verses 22 to 25. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. So we're we're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. There is so much in this. This is why we're going to take three weeks to work through this. But what this is speaking, I mean, we'll have a break, you get to go home. What we, uh, I want to just pull out the first thing is that it's talking about something happening within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We are feeling the birth pangs. The metaphor that is being used here is one of pregnancy, of conception. And that's the metaphor I want to pick up today because this is a key theme of Advent. And understanding this helps us understand something that's really key to understanding our spiritual lives and what is to be transformed into Christ-likeness. And that is how the Holy Spirit conceives new life in us, new dreams, hope in God. The world teaches us to get the most out of life, whereas God wishes to put his life in us. And Advent teaches us about this process. Bobby Goss, in his book, Living the Christian Year, writes this of Advent. Advent is a season for waiting, We wait for the coming of God. We need him to come. Our world is messed up and we are messed up. We lament our condition and and long for God to set things right, to make us better. So we pray and watch for signs of his presence. We do all all we know to do so that we are open and ready. In the midst of hardship and disappointment, we continue to wait. We wait in hope. It's really key that often hope is linked to hardship and difficulty. The world just tells us that there's just one, two states, feeling bad, feeling good. Scripture goes deeper. But we just continues. We wait in hope. We believe that something is happening in our world. Something is taking shape in our lives. Something large, light-filled, and life-giving. Again, that imagery that something is growing inside of us. Now, what Advent teaches us 
is that the kingdom of God is always pregnant with possibility. What Advent teaches us is that the Holy Spirit wants to conceive heaven in us. So to dig this apart, we're going to go through just a few key points, but I think this is essential stuff to understand what God has birthed in us, is birthing, and wants to birth in us. So the first point, if you're taking notes, is that God wants to plant heaven in us. God, the Holy Spirit, wants to conceive new life. He wants to plant heaven in us. Now, if you've been around a little while at Red, I did a series not too long ago where I spoke about the beginning of the the start of scripture in Genesis, we see that statement that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, often people get this wrong. They think he just created the earth, which he does, but he creates the heaven and the earth. Why? Because the heavens are actually the blueprints, the architectural plans for what God wants imprinted in the world. Heaven is where God's will happens in fullness. It's not just the place we go when, he, when we die. It's the place that surrounds God where his will is in its fullness. So this is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven sets the standard. So the Holy Spirit becomes this intermediary, pouring out the Father's will on the earth, imprinting it with heaven. And this happens in a particular way with humans. Humans, we see in Genesis, come from the earth. The Spirit is breathed into earth. That's what creates atoms. That's what creates humans. Adam, that's what creates humans. And in the same way, the Spirit is wishing to blow the pattern of heaven on you. Jesus' death on the cross means we have access and that actually Jesus is now changing us. We are being remade into Christ's likeness. And so new life is seeded in us by the Holy Spirit. So the first thing to realize is God wants to plant heaven in us. He does not want you to remain as you are now. Heaven hovers over you at every moment, calling you into Christ's likeness. And the Spirit works and equips and comes close and counsels, guiding you towards this. So the first thing is God wants to plant heaven in us. And to the Holy Spirit conceives in unique ways. Now, most of us, if you've done year 10 biology or something, understand the process of conception in humans. I'm not going to go into that today. But we have to understand, we have to go back to year 10 and actually understand how the Holy Spirit conceives new life in us from a spiritual perspective. The Holy Spirit conceives in unique and heavenly ways that are different to the earth. This is one of the ways that heaven's imprint comes to the world. That's key. The Holy Spirit conceives in unique and heavenly ways. So how? Well, the Holy Spirit conceives new life in particular kinds of people. Now, often in human conception, it's often people who are at a particular stage of their life, who the various biological factors are there. Women in a certain age group are the people who conceive usually. But in the scriptures, in the biblical understanding, it's actually different. The Holy Spirit conceives new life in, I'm going to say, two particular kinds of people. Now we get a clue of this when we look at something the prophet Joel wrote 
prophesying forward. The prophet Joel prophesied forward to this time when the spirit would be pulled out, writing, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Old men, young. Old, young. Now we see this begin to play out. We see this in the Advent story that we encounter in Luke's gospel in chapter 1. Luke writes this, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. This is a pattern we see again and again in the scripture. This is Abraham and Sarah, old, unable to conceive. This is Elkanah, Hannah. This motif we see again and again repeated in the scripture. And the issue here is not just that they're unable to conceive, that they're actually old. And what this means is, these are the kinds of people whose hearts have been broken again and again. These are the people who understand disappointment. These are the people who understand an absence of hope. These are the kinds of people who have every excuse to start to become hardened and cynical. But what we see in the Advent story is that, again, God loves to turn up in these moments and people who have lived for a long time to the point where the dream could fade, to the point where they've seen a lot of stuff, where perhaps they've been let down, let down others themselves, seen the good things of the church but a lot of the bad stuff, seen actually their hopes in life often not come to fruition, have every excuse to be cynical, it's so often those people that God conceives something new in them. Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John the Baptist, the person, the new Elijah, who will herald in the coming Jesus. And what's interesting is that Elizabeth and Zechariah have every reason to be cynical, hardened, and weary. Yet where do we find Zechariah? What's he doing? He's continuing to serve and be in the temple to obey. The scripture tells us that they walked a life of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit loves to conceive new dreams perhaps germinate seeds along laying dormant in the ground of those who have every excuse to be cynical. The Holy Spirit loves a second and a third act. The other group, which Joel points towards, is the young. And again, loose gospel states that the God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was young. She was a teenage, teenager. Now, the Holy Spirit, we see in Scripture, also loves to conceive new life in those who are young. The work of the Barna Group, which looks at demographics and trends, 
They've discovered conclusively that the vast majority of people who say yes to Jesus, whether they've grown up in a Christian family or not, first time or I'm really going for it, that that happens somewhere between 15 and 20. There is a golden period there that actually people have the life of God planted in them and they say yes to Jesus. So we see two people here, young people, teens, who are supple clay because they've not been hardened by life, and God loves that. But also older people, people who should have every, every excuse to be, to be cynical, who've lived the hardness of life, but actually find that their hearts have been softened by God. So they're the two kinds of people, the young and those who should be cynical, but are still turning up. Now, the next thing we need to learn as we learn how God conceives new dreams, new life in us, is we need to understand that Holy Spirit conception will often result in a conflict or a contest. I say that again. Holy Spirit conception will all often result in a conflict or a contest. You would think, Conception just then, this is, this is what people have hoped for. It's all going to be hunky-dory, smooth sailing, but often it actually results in a conflict or a contest. Why? Well, in the spiritual sense, not in the biological sense, but in the spiritual sense, humans are always pregnant. Humans are always pregnant with something. We always have something inside of us, something in our inner world. It could be a desire, a hurt, a bitterness. The scriptures have this sense that there is this inner world and eventually that will be birthed through the tongue, through actions, through attitudes that go from being inside in our inner world, our inner man or inner woman, and will come out and then begin to play out in our lives in physical ways, in actions in the world, and then they will go social because humans are social. We live in social structures and relationships. So humans are always pregnant and what is inside of you will be birthed out. Now, a lot of the stuff inside of us is not of God. It's not pointing towards God's best. So if when God places a new dream, something to carry, he conceives a new vision, a hope in us. Often, what you will then experience, I'm going to call a Rebecca spiritual pregnancy. RSP. Just made that up. What is a Rebecca pregnancy? Now, in Genesis 25, verses 21 to 22, I think just 21 actually, it says this. Again, another couple, older, unable to have children. It says this. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. Now, she's not just pregnant. She's not pregnant with what us parents of twins call a singleton. Not really, but I have heard that. I mean, that people say that. I don't use that term. Uh, she's not just pregnant with one kid. She has two boys growing inside of her. 
So it goes on, the scriptures say this, the babies jostled within her and she said, why is this happening to me? Now, as I said, parent of, parent of twins, uh, Trudy carried uh, two twin boys in her and she gets this in a way I don't. What it's like to have two boys fighting. Now, our boys will often get into tussles and they rock around the backyard and they come and you have to break up some argument they're having. Well, imagine that in your stomach. <laughs> and also, they come home now, they're growing, and you can see them getting older, and they just eat, wheatbacks. Imagine that in your stomach. So Trudy, when she, was, when she was pregnant with twins, literally is just eating and eating and eating. And she's not, she's not putting on weight, but she's putting on weight this way, and she went out for half a meter. So behind, she would look normal at a cafe, if you saw her behind, and she would get up, and turn, and people would openly gasp. Like, like, ah, like should you be, should you be home? I'm, I'm only six months pregnant. Now, Rebecca has in her Esau and Jacob wrestling in conflict. And often what will happen is when God plants something new in you, a new hope, a new dream, is that that will often come in conflict with what is already in you. Now, this will happen at Red. For some people who come for the first time, often people come to Red, and let me just spell this out if you're new. Heaps of people come to Red because they've heard a podcast, Cultural Moment, Rebuilders, listened to something, read a book, and it connects. It like connects. Like this is explaining the world. This, this is connecting. There's this deep sort of sense of connection people have with a lot of the resources that we've put out there and they've gone far and wide. So people come. It's like, this is stimulating my brain. This is incredible. I'm thinking about this and oh, wow, that fits in the world. And I saw that at work and oh, wow, the scripture's coming alive and this is how it interplays with the culture. They come to read. Oh, wow, you're hearing it from the pulpit. This is brilliant. Ah, exciting. And there's a point where it goes from here and God starts to go, I don't just want here, it starts to go here. And there's this realization that God is going deep. I just don't want to give you good content, I want transformation. Not just information, transformation. And often who people then come to read for a few months like, Ugh! and they repeat Rebecca's words, why is this happening to me? Now, not just about red. But when God plants something in you, it will often result in a conflict or contest. Again, it comes clashing with that view of the world. Our world teaches us to get the most out of life, more experiences, more experiences, more experiences, whereas God wishes to put his life in us. So, this leads to the next point. This is really key. This is why Holy Spirit conception will so often require an emptying. An emptying. And often that comes before or it comes after, but there is this sense that humans, as I said, are always pregnant. There's often something growing inside of us that will eventually be birthed, and very often that is not of God. And God wants all of us. For humans to become fertile in a spiritual sense and receptive to the dreams of God, they first must become empty vessels. We must be rid of the things growing inside of us which are not aligned with God. This is why often the contest is because the spiritual conception is intrusive. 
Conception comes from outside. This is the opposite direction to the world. You cannot get pregnant yourself, by yourself. You cannot make the whole thing happen. There's something outside must then go in. So even when longed for, conception still can feel like an interruption because our world tells us you've got it all inside you. You are an endless resource. Just express who you are inside. Go inside yourself. Express your truth to the world. Self-expression. This is the dominant gospel of our world, that all the truth is in here, and essentially, you're a mini-God. You're a mini-God. And this is completely different to what the Scriptures tell us. The Scriptures tell us, yes, you are wonderfully and lovingly made. God created you in his image, but you're not God. In fact, we rebelled against God. And so the journey that we go on is to understand our place in the universe, and that is as worshippers of God, not worshippers of self. So what will happen is conception will come from outside, and this completely subverts our understanding of how we view the world. This is why Mary, when the angel comes to her, and you think this is incredible. Here's a 14, 15-year-old girl, whatever. She's looking. You think as a teenager, you're 14, 15-year-old girl, you're looking for what's my place in the world? Where do I fit? Who do I relate to? What's my identity? You're building a sense of self coming out of childhood. And you're there, and then an angel rocks up, like an angel, like a top angel. And like, this is like a top-shelf angel rocks up to your little two-bit back-of-nowhere town in first-century Israel, and he's like, Mary, you are highly favoured above all women. Boom. Well, thank you. Have you got this on a bit of paper I can put up somewhere? Can I, can I post this? This is incredible. Thank you so much. This is the affirmation that I've looked for. I knew there was something special inside of me. Thank you for affirming that. Top shelf angel. Can I get the town to gather round? No. This does not come as the ultimate affirmation. This actually comes as an interruption. It's interesting. In the second part, Luke 1 verse 29, it says this. After him saying, you are highly favored amongst women, what's her reply? It says, she was greatly troubled at his words. And I was looking at him in susly, wondered what kind of greeting this might be. This was not her life plan. Thus, we must understand that conception, like pregnancy itself, is a decentering of self. You no longer just eat for yourself. You're eating for what is growing inside of you. This is not living for yourself. That baby, as it grows, is preparing for the moment when it comes out and you realize that the plans you have for that day are going to be thwarted by screaming and poo. And that you're going to go to the cafe like you did before, but it's going to be like climbing Everest and you're going to have so much equipment just to get there that it's going to blow your mind. And this is a net lesson knocking slowly. It's not about you. It's not about you. Life was never about you. And what it is, is a slow decentering of self because the dominant myth and gospel of our, of our age is you are the center of the universe. And pregnancy is this slow discipleship by reality that you're not. Not everyone passes that. If to become spiritually mature, we just had to have a baby, the world would be experiencing a revival. It doesn't change that. But what is going on here is that when God plants his dream in you, when he plants new life in you, you are starting that journey that is, is going to descend to yourself. Now, this is interesting. The angel says to Mary, 
The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary was overshadowed by this conception in her. When God does a work in you, it will begin to overshadow you. We can mistake and think this is like about my glory, but if it's truly God's glory, your glory is going to be sidelined and God's glory is going to be dominant. Mary was decentered. The Holy Spirit will birth new things in those who allow themselves and their desires to be overshadowed by God. This is why, and this is my next point, that often the Holy Spirit conceives in those who sow tears. Completely opposite to biological conception. God made biological conception pleasurable so that the human race would continue and they would, people just wouldn't, I don't know, go and play golf instead of reproducing. But, and I wish it was so in both biological and spiritual life, that I see this again and again in the scriptures, I see it again and again in the history of the church, I see it again and again in those who I walk closely with my faith with, I see it in my own life, that so often the Holy Spirit conceives in those who sow in tears. So often, God will birth dreams after a time of difficulty. The emptying, often is not understood as emptying, when it comes, it's often felt as suffering. Difficulty, isolation, misunderstanding, conflict. The dreams of God come to those who truly begin to grieve like he grieves. When the people of God are in Egypt, it says the kind of prayer that reached God was a groaning. And that's a word that we see in Scripture again and again, prayer as groaning, not just a laundry list, but literally a deep guttural groaning that in the Hebrew, I won't go there now, but actually has a lot of links to what it is for a woman to, to, to be yelling out in labor. Some people in this room, God is right now reframing a time of difficulty, suffering, isolation, maybe not even feeling God in a way. And the Holy Spirit's whispering and saying, you need to reframe that moment. That was actually a time of planting. Pregnancy has really difficult moments. There's awkwardness, there's pain, there's decentering. Births a whole even next level. God has been planting his dreams, often accompanied by, sea, by tears. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to look at this process of how God births his dreams and new life in us. But I just want to end this week because if you were someone who says, yeah, that is me. I've had so many disappointments and I've been pressing into God for years and I keep coming and a lot of my mates are no longer walking with me and I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. And I'm here and God, I want a new dream. I want one of those dreams that you placed in me. I want one of those seeds to be germinated. If you have every right to be cynical and maybe many of your other Christian friends are now in a place of utter cynicism, but you're still here, I think this is for you. If you are young and you're, God's doing something and you're at the start of that journey and maybe you're not a 14 or 15 year old virgin like Mary, but maybe you're in your 20s, Maybe you are living in a world which has promised you everything and endless hype and rubbish and none of it's coming true and everything is starting to look 
really sus. And nihilism and, and cynicism is possibly, you can see it coming down the road. I think this is also for you. What's interesting is when we see that interchange between Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, it says the babies jostled with each other. This is verse 22, Genesis 25, verse 22. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? Now, we can stop at the why is this happening to me, but if we stop there, we don't get to the next good part. So what did she do? When she, instead of like, why is this happening to me? Ugh. She then moves to the next part. She went to inquire of the Lord. This is not just inquirers asking a question. This is pressing into God. Now, we see this spirit over another woman in the New Testament Advent story. This points forward to a woman called Anna, who can teach us the way of the way the Holy Spirit conceives something new and how we should to posture ourselves at moments like this. Luke's Gospel says, chapter 2, verse 36 to 38, there was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. It's like Harrison Ford old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, so she was married for seven years and then was a widow until she was 84. Most of her life living in the grief of losing her husband as a widow in a time where there's no welfare net. Really, really tough life. She has every reason to be cynical, to be hurt, to retreat, to just simply ask the question, why is this happening to me? Like Rebecca. But what's incredible is the next line. She never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. A temple which Jesus comes and turns the tables over because this is a temple which is not imprinted by heaven. But she is still there pressing in, fasting, praying, worshipping. She sees the baby Jesus with Joseph and Mary in verse 38 and she comes up to them and says, she gives thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of, Jesus, of Jerusalem. This tells us two key things. For those who are resonating and hearing and thinking, yes, something's been planted in me in the last little time. For those who've had long dormant seeds waiting to be germinated. For those who wish for God to conceive something in them, two things we can do. Begin to pray. We are carving out a culture here at Red. We announced last week that we have a prayer room. It's slowly being filled up. Day and night, prayer. Not because we feel that's some religious duty that we've got to do out of compulsion, but that's actually the place where we take things to God, where we inquire of the Lord. When we worship here, we're actually building something. After COVID, as we're in this period of rebuilding, what if actually the period of rebuilding is also a period of reseeding, where God is placing seeds in us and actually dreams that have been long dormant are actually giving birth. And what if this moment we're actually carrying something? The second thing, Anna does is it says, she goes and tells everyone, everyone about the child. She's the first evangelist. Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He's not even walked around and done his ministry. She is the proto-original evangelist telling everyone about the coming and come Messiah. And so we need to begin to speak words of encouragement we need to get beyond the incredible social awkwardness that is increasingly 
coming over our day, where we don't talk to each other about what's going on, where things are awkward, so we move back from them. We need to begin to talk about the good news of what Jesus is doing in us, because the person next to you actually may also have a new dream conceived in them, and God wants you to, to talk, because there's nothing as encouraging as when others begin to speak of this story. And so two things. One comment to end, and then one way we're going to press into this. My sense, I didn't just preach this sermon because, hey, this is the Advent week we're at. I preached this sermon, and this was a wrestle. Like, often I do my sermons like Wednesday, Thursday, and it's done. I went from Wednesday, I finished this late yesterday, and it was like, man, it was like giving birth. Not that I've given birth. But it was painful and it took a long time and it's like, oh, this thing. And I actually believe this is because there is, there is, at the moment, God is planting something and conceiving something in numerous people in this room. Secondly, I believe that God is planting something in our church. Thirdly, I believe God is planting something in his church, not just across our city, but across the world. And we need to now carry this with the care and tenderness and vigilance and dedication of a mother. Something new is growing. Elijah sees the small fist of the cloud after a period of drought. There is a small cloud on the horizon. There is a tiny seed within. There's a little baby growing. Let's be thrilled by hope. A new story is developing. Let's stand. I'm going to pray in a second for us. And then what we're going to do is, I'm just going to get some of the people who, who would like to, pr- uh, some of the team to pray. And we're just going to do a prayer. It's just going to be a quick prayer. Like it's not going to be a massive ongoing prayer session. But they're just going to, if, if you come forward and you, you have their permission, they're just going to lay hand on your head and just pray that God conceives something new in you. If you feel that something is already there, just say pray for the thing that's already there, that it continues to grow. So I'm going to pray now. Father, Jesus, we just pray for your spirit now. We want to give this time to you here in this Advent moment. We pray that you have your way with us. We thank you for the interruption. We thank you, Father, that you want to do new things in a world that's just stuck on repeat. God, I want to thank you for what you've been birthing and changing, for the new life, the new dreams, the new following and focus of you. And so, Father, we just pray at this moment that your spirit will move amongst us And for those at this point who want to come and be prayed for, we pray that you conceive and seed a new life, new dreams, new hope, and that may we be thrilled by hope in a world that's oh so cynical. So we just pray, Spirit, come now as we worship, as we sing these songs to you. Seed something new, we ask. 